Well, it is great to be with y'all tonight, to be together for the Lord's Sabbath. And um, I pray that we would cease from all of our work and all of our striving from this week and that we would enter into his rest and that we would be refreshed by his word. If you'll turn with me, we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and the church's Bible, page 764. Most Bibles include a subheading above chapter 2 to say something to the effect of the vanity of pleasure. And I know this word vanity is, is kind of difficult to grab a hold of, so we might think of the meaning, meaninglessness of pleasure. Last week we, we talked about what Solomon writes about, this meaninglessness of life under the sun, a life without God, and how this reality can either be depressing or refreshing. Studying this week, this tension has remained. This tension between depressing and refreshing. And the Lord has given me a new understanding of why. So reading in chapter 2 what Solomon writes to us, there is this tinge of acceptance and even frustration to his tone. He's almost apathetic in the sense that he still has a choice. Solomon doesn't write from this position of hindsight or absolute freedom or great relationship with God. Instead, his words are almost a speculation, like an observer. So understanding this, the Lord has allowed me to understand how my human heart and my human spirit are conditioned more than ever. I think it's easy to, to be dishonest with ourselves oftentimes, right? To assume that we have made a choice to be in covenant with Jesus and so that there are no more choices to be made. Instead of understanding that each and every day there is a decision to be made to follow Jesus and to align with his purpose. Solomon doesn't write like this. And because of that, his words are uncomfortable. Because I see that even as he's writing these words, he's writing them as if he is thinking about which choice to make. We all have knowledge and understanding. We all have experienced the Lord in our lives to different degrees. What matters is not our intelligence, it's not our wisdom, it is our heart and our response to this knowledge and understanding and experience. So Solomon writes like there is this decision to be made. Life under the sun is meaningless. 
And I can almost see him gritting with certainty and anger that there's still a choice to be made. This leaves him with one or the other. Either one, his pride is both the symptom and the treatment of his condition. Hear that again. His pride is the symptom and the treatment of his condition. It is his choice to remain paralyzed because of this pride. I imagine Solomon just lying there, frustrated because of this broken world and his own willfulness to sin and justifying his frustration. His paralysis is a chosen condition. Or, he can recognize that this world's brokenness is a result of sin and his sin in it. And that he needs a savior and that he needs redemption. He can choose to be changed by God, but his knowledge, his anger, his pride are not justifiable, nor are they acceptable. So in order to be saved and in relationship with God, he has to forfeit all that he thinks he's entitled to. So my sadness this week has really been over this reality that Solomon reveals that spiritual understanding does not equal salvation. James tells us in the New Testament that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves he says for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets the type of man he was deborah's talked about um waking up in the morning and before her feet even hit the ground that she prays and that she enters into a conversation with the Lord and that she wants to begin her day in fellowship and relationship with the Lord. And I believe in a similar manner that the Father's desire is not that we would go along assuming our relationship and in salvation with Him, but we would make a decision each day that we would look in the mirror and that we would not leave it and assume that we are full of great complexion and spiritual countenance, but that we would make a decision to follow him. That we'd not just know the word of the Lord and assume our spiritual righteousness, but we'd make a decision to follow him, to follow his ways, to enter into his righteousness. I pray tonight that what we read from Solomon's journal would be a mirror for us to see our spiritual complexion. Roger, if you'd put the first slide up. We're going to, uh, to look at chapter 2, which, as we said, uh, most of our Bibles will call the vanity of pleasure. It's always helpful for me to kind of break down a little bit of what I'm reading because it it, it, it can it almost seem overwhelming all at once. So there's really three sections to Solomon's poem, his journal entry, his message. Uh, the first, in verses 1 through 10, 
is his search for meaning. He's going to talk about how he has searched for meaning in all the pleasures of this world that he can find. The second part is his reflection of this search. He's going to report back his considerations of all of the things that he has labored over, considering his wisdom, madness, and folly, considering his wealth. And finally, he'll, he'll ultimately tell us that in this world, all that is done under the sun, all that is done in the flesh, all that is, is done according to our ways, it's really as good as it gets. Things aren't even as good as we think they are, yet they are as good as they can be without the Lord. So let's read together. We'll read all of chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and through verse 26. Solomon the preacher says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great, I built myself houses, and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desires, desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on the, all the works that my hands had done, and all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity, all grasping for the wind, there was no profit under the sun. Then I turned to myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that folly excels, excuse me, wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I more wise? Then I said in my heart, this is also vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise than the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? 
Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For this is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. For what has a man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So Solomon examines a lot of things. He examines much of his life. And we should not remember Solomon just as a great king, yes, or just as a normal man, but someone who everything he touched seemed to turn to gold, except for when it didn't. Everything he did seemed to prosper, except that spiritually it didn't. So he starts out in verses 1 through 10 and basically describes the extent of his search for the meaning of life under the sun. Basically, Solomon consumes and experienced everything he could. I'm sure we've seen movies about people who do these things, who have their fill of every type of experience and pleasure imaginable. And this is Solomon. Verses 1 and 2, he kind of gives a, a summary of this. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. And mirth is really just a, a synonym for pleasure. I will test you with pleasure. He is going to test the meaning of life by experiencing everything to see if there is meaning of life and pleasure. It's almost comical, I think, we might think of this and think, well, this is silly. Who has time to, you know, experience every pleasure that there is to see if there is meaning in it? But is it not what we do in the flesh every day? Testing to see if maybe this thing that we do in the flesh, maybe that this thing that we do that's really not anything that God would lead us to do, maybe this will somehow give us some spiritual satisfaction. He says, therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. Verse 2, he said, I said of laughter, madness, and of pleasure, of mirth, what does it accomplish? 
I was thinking about this idea of laughter being madness. We hear things in, you know, uh, public interest stories in the news and they talk about you know how many calories you burn with a smile versus a frown or how good laughter is for you some say it's the best medicine right what Solomon is wanting us to realize is how most everything that we do accomplishes nothing we tell jokes we tell puns we watch shows And our hearts seem filled with gladness, yet it really accomplishes no end. He says it's madness. Kings at this point in time would have jesters who would come in and say, you know, make me laugh, make me happy. Take me away from this distressing day that I have had, where I've been at war and I've made decisions. Make me forget about those things. He says these things or madness. In verse 3, it says he experiments with wine and folly. I really don't even know the fullness of what he means, other than to say he would get completely intoxicated to just make a slew of bad decisions. Let's see if getting intoxicated and making bad decisions will give me some pleasure. He said, of course it does not. Verses 4 through 6, he describes all the things that he has made. If you look in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6, it says, myself, myself, myself. See, Solomon was known as the great builder. He was an architect. He was an engineer. He was really a savant, a genius. And people came from all over the area to see the things that he had made, that he had engineered, that he had designed. Yet he tells us very plainly that he'd made these things for himself. Houses and vineyards and gardens and orchards and pools. And the thing is, these are legitimate accomplishments. Which should give us some pause for the things that we think that we have legitimately accomplished These things that are worthy of sharing with our friends, worthy of going on and on and on about on social media and telling everyone, look at what I have achieved. Solomon had even greater legitimacy to share of these things. Yet, he found no satisfaction in them. In verses 7 and 8, we're told what he acquired that he acquired whatever he wanted, male and female servants, more that were born in, in his house, meaning they, they didn't leave, they, they had children, and their children became servants in his house. He's telling us that he had peace in Jerusalem that would allow his household to not be taken from him, but that it would grow, that he acquired herds and flocks more in Jerusalem than any before him. He tells us in the second half of verse 7. Silver, gold, special treasures of kings and provinces, meaning that his territory continued to grow and everyone was paying homage to him with taxes. Male and female singers, musical instruments of every kind. If acquisitions could accomplish satisfaction, Solomon would have all the satisfaction there needed to be. 
He'd accumulated more than any before him in Jerusalem, he said. He became great and seemingly happy and successful. He says it again and again, greater than all who were before him in Jerusalem. He's trying to tell us something important about his heart. See, his his father David was the man whose heart was after the Lord. But Solomon is trying to say, I achieve more than anyone else dared dream of. But in all his explanation of his achievements, he continues to simply compare himself to Saul and to David, those who came before him. I was thinking about this because it seems so understandable to compare ourselves to others right? To compare ourselves to others in terms of sin and how it affects us and well others are doing this and others are doing that and I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that or well they did this or they did that or they said this or they said that or the achievements of others. Well I'm doing pretty good because I've achieved more than my father or his father or my cousin or my nephew or my niece. Instead we're urged by scripture by brothers like Paul and Peter, to run the race to receive the prize, to be holy as he is holy. See, when we begin to compare ourselves to others, we are going into the flesh where Solomon warns us to stay away from. We're going into the things of the world where there is no healthy comparison. There is no spiritual comparison. Paul and Peter warn us to focus on spiritual things alone. And Solomon's explaining that there is no meaning to be found in this physical life. There is no meaning to be found under the sun. Then he reflects on on these things. So he's he's told us about his search for meaning, and now he's going to give us his understanding gained. And in 11 through 23, he says again and again that all remain grasping for the wind. We might get sick and tired of hearing this phrase, of hearing, oh, we get it, Solomon. All is vanity. All is meaningless. But he can't tell us enough because we can't understand it enough. He's going to compare wisdom and folly and realize that the same end comes to all who are apart from the from God. Whether we are homeless and in a gutter or Bill Gates and a tower, if we are apart from the Lord, the same end comes to us. In verse 11, he says, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Nothing he does in the flesh, nothing we do apart from the Lord can yield any spiritual dividend. That's what he said. He uses this word profit. I think of Philippians when Paul uses this accounting terminology and he says, but what things were gain or profit to me, I have counted these as loss for Christ. Our world has conditioned us to see in terms of profit and loss. And we have mixed up the Lord's end. 
We think of all we are giving up for gain instead of looking at all we are gaining by giving up. Solomon says, in our flesh, in our way, in our purpose, there is no spiritual gain. We want to see these as not mutually exclusive, but they are. In the next several verses, in 12 through 17, he'll look at this value of wisdom, madness, and folly. These are very interesting words that he continues to to put together again and again. Wisdom and madness and folly. And I began to think about it, and I believe that he sees wisdom and madness as antonyms, as opposites. But folly is the result. Folly is ultimately the result of both of these. Because whether we are wise or mad, if we are wise and mad in the flesh, the result is folly. We assume, I think, somehow that if we have most enough of the right answers, that even if we're not really looking for the Lord in our world, we won't end up in folly, we won't end up in danger. But Solomon says, we need to check the spiritual realm because all that is outside of it is folly. In verse 12, he he says, Then I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. I believe that in one sense this is just something he's conveying, that he is the son of a king. He is a king who has succeeded a king and he's explaining this reality that he can't really accomplish anything that his father didn't already accomplish but at the same time saying that he inherited a condition. What can he do but that which was done before him? And that is true if we are walking according to this world and to the flesh. What can we do but what was done already before us? We're all in someone else's shadow. Then he goes on to talk about these two realities that have the same end. Wisdom is better than folly. Light is better than dark. Wise or simple, educated or poor, wealthy, excuse me, educated or not, wealthy or poor, important or outcast. In the flesh, the same happens to them all. None of their memories matter, and they all die. In verses 17 and 18, he ultimately gets to the point that he says he hates life. These are strong words. These are strong words for a man who has had everything has had every success and every pleasure for him to say he hates life. Therefore, verse 17 says, Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
I've been wondering about this, and I wonder, did Solomon hate life because he couldn't conquer it or because he realized it was foolishness? It would seem the latter, that he hates life because he's realized that it is meaningless and foolish. But if you read everything he's just written, you might think the reality is he's realized he can't conquer it. He can't do enough to be in control of his own life. The result is the same. We do whatever we want in the flesh, and we are doomed. Doomed. He makes mention specifically in the next verse, in verse 18, of the labor, of the work. He says, the work was distressing. And because he'd leave all his accomplishments to another. And that's what kings do, right? That's what parents do. We, we build these empires. We build these things and we leave them to our children. We pass down a legacy. We pass down a heritage. And, and then he's frustrated by that because, you know, he wants to surpass the king or the father that, that he has carried on that legacy from. And he wants to bask in the glory of those things. But then he gets depressed when he realizes that he has to hand it over. That someone else might ruin his legacy. He says in 18, I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. This truly is all vanity. This truly is all vanity that he doesn't even want to live anymore because he realizes that all he will accomplish will be undone potentially by someone who comes after him, either because then they will get the glory or because they will destroy his legacy and destroy his glory. But there's really not much difference to the selfish ambitions of a king and to us lowly peasants, right? If we live in bondage to our namesake and our purpose. Then in 20 and 21, he explains further how leaving this heritage to one who will come after him. 20, he says, Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had done under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and great evil. It's not perfectly clear whether he considers it madness to do this, to leave it to his son, that someone could either squander his legacy or that they will reap the benefits of his hard work. But both of those things... He's saying this is both vanity, meaningless, and great evil. So it's when, in one sense he's recognizing the meaninglessness that this system has been set up for. That he would become king, that he would work his entire life, that it would all be meaningless, and then he would pass on that meaningless to someone else. And yet great evil at the same time. I think about this, and as silly as this might seem because we're not kings ourselves, this is how our lives are spent. If we're not following the Lord in every way, we are following the enemy or ourselves in every way. 
And if we're not building up riches in the kingdom of heaven, we are building up riches on this earth. The Lord gave me two scriptures to combat this kind of spiritual selfishness that we must guard against. This spiritual selfishness that that we are somehow, uh, our glory is lost when others receive what we have worked to build. Or others destroy what we have worked to achieve. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, we're told that John the Baptist came as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And John preached, it says, saying, Then one comes after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. See, if we follow in the ways of Solomon, then we are in the company of misery. We are in the company of evil. When we subscribe to the the ways of this world, of the American dream, of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, of building a house and building a name, then we are filled with this evil he is talking about. When we are in those ways, then we will surely be slighted thinking about preparing the way for a Savior and Him receiving the glory for our labor. In 1 Corinthians, Paul warns about becoming arrogant. He says, For who makes you differ from one another, and what do you have that you do not receive? Now, if indeed you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? See, when we move over into the spiritual realm and leave the things of the flesh, we recognize that we have nothing that we have not been given. And anything that we have, we have not given it ourselves, but it's the Lord who's given it to us. Solomon finishes finishes this reflection in 23 to say, What do we get for all our work but anxiety? Well, 22 and 23, read with me. He says, For what has a man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Boy, these are depressing words. Because if we can't sleep and we can't rest in the Lord, if we feel miserable at the end of our working days, this should be a reflection on exactly where we are, but in the flesh, toiling for the things of this world. What do we get for all our work but anxiety? This is why Solomon hates life. Because in the flesh, all we generate is anxiety. And he makes a great point here that the labors of our flesh, in the labors of our flesh, our hearts can never truly rest. He says that for all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. What he means is it's even vanity trying to assume that we can rest 
when we're living in the flesh. Now his conclusion. He says in verse 24, Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he might give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. He's saying that he's elevating himself as as one who is full of wisdom and full of prosperity and saying, the best I can do is to eat and drink and be merry. This is about as good as this life has to offer me. And all that I've accomplished and all that I've achieved and all the books I've written and all the wisdom that I've amassed, the best I can do is hope for a fine meal and a couple of jokes. What he's telling us is that it's important we accept this reality. It's important that we realize this reality that in our flesh, the best we can do are Super Bowl parties and birthdays. And even aiming to find pleasure in these things, this best case scenario is meaningless. Oh, man. That is a depressing word. And life without salvation is depressing. A life where birthdays and Super Bowl parties are as good as it gets, that's depressing. That's what he's telling us. See, this may be the best news that we can hear this week to realize what the good news really means. The good news really means that we cannot settle for any of these things he's just described. So where the Lord has drawn me this week is this idea of striving in verse 22. So turn with me and read again. Verse 22 says, For what has a man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart? with which he has toiled under the sun. The Lord highlighted this word to me, and I could see this because striving is a a spiritual word, so to speak, a word that we've used before, maybe is something that we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be striving. This word striving is the, the Hebrew word rayon, which means longing or striving. Its root word means to purpose or to aim. And in the New Testament, the Greek translation of this this word means to choose for oneself before another thing. It means intent. Each of us are striving for something. Each of us are longing and aiming And ultimately, each of us are choosing. Just like Solomon. 
we have these conditions, we have these understandings and these experiences and these truths the Lord has given us, and we are longing and aiming and choosing something. Scripture tells us the Lord will give us the desires of our heart. And these desires can either be a blessing or a curse. I pray that we wouldn't settle for our own assumptions and understanding of where our hearts are. Let me say that again. I pray that we wouldn't settle for our own assumptions or understanding of where our hearts are. That we would take a lesson from Solomon who said, I have to know where my heart is and what I'm striving for. I pray that our heart's desire would be to look into this mirror and to see a changed countenance. I want us to close by reading a scripture together. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1325, 1 Corinthians 15. A great word that is often quoted in bite-sized pieces and chunks that are massaged and manipulated out of context. Read with me in verse 15, excuse me, 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. In the Lord. I pray that it would be so among us. Amen.